Maker, gold, gold, gold standards. Phil Spector, but he was a fucked up guy. Real, yeah, well, real quick, he was messed up. Yeah, uh, legendary, uh, famous, infamous, and a murderer. Okay, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, might as well call it what it is. But uh, you know, there's a there's a fine line between genius and insanity. And I, I think that a lot of people that are very creative, very, you know, that fall into that kind of genius category, I think that it's very easy for them to flip the other way, okay, because you're kind of walking that line. And we're going to get into that today. Uh, we're going to talk about a guy, Phil Spector, who, you know, is famous, but also tragic, okay? Yeah. And, and really, it is a very sad story, his downfall. Did it to himself, okay? But it's still very sad to see how somebody can soar so high and then be so low at the same time. Um, so, you know, let me ask you something, Rob. You know, I mean, we'll keep it about the music right now. Yeah. Um, how many times do you listen to a, a piece of music, a song, an album, just based on the producer? Many, many times. I well well you yeah I mean based if if you're talking about Phil Spector but like yeah like, my, if, it's, my, like if I hear anything what's done because you listen to the guy like if you ever listen to like people that before him and then after him you could tell the difference oh like, yeah right away oh yeah there's many people that were influenced by him that the wall of sound that he was yeah. known for uh, yeah it's a it's a it's a technology that he made up he invented it okay but before him. Producers were a dime a dozen, and they were yeah. good. They were good producers before him, but it was it was like nobody, cared, Bowie, nobody, nobody David cared. Bowie was a good producer. Who? David Bowie. Oh yeah, but let me tell you something. David Bowie was influenced by Phil Spector. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he was a big Ronnie Spector fan, so he knew about that kind of stuff. Um, he even had a little affair with Ronnie Spector, but I won't go into that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, even like Dr. Dre, people that he produced, um, like Eminem and people like this, guys like that, like a Dr. Dre in rap, when he produced somebody, you know they're good. He just doesn't produce anybody. You can tell the difference right away. Right. Because there were people in hip-hop that could have been great, but they went with White Craft, their Bob Body fucking um, um, imitator, and yeah. they, they, he, that guy sucked. Well, you know, like a good movie, like, for instance, the latest Martin Scorsese movie you might want to see or Brian De Palma movie you might want to see. You know, you know the, the director. People that, people that loved music, if a new Phil Spector-produced band came out or a new album, like, for instance, when he started working with the Beatles, okay, I mean, that, that was, you know, and then later on, George Harrison and John Lennon solo. 
But I, I mean, think that, the George Harrison was fantastic. That fantastic, was a masterpiece. Fantastic, you know. But not too many people go out and buy a record based on who produced it. And and I think that, you know, Phil, maybe a little more now, but in those days it was really just Phil. You know, Phil yeah. would be enough to, to draw you in. But let's get into it because he's got a fascinating story here. We're going to talk about all the angles. He was born Harvey Phillips Specter on December 26, 1939, in the Bronx, the Boogie Down Bronx in New York City. Yeah. Um, his parents were named Benjamin and Bertha. His grandfather came from Ukraine in 1913, okay, and actually changed his name. He anglicized it to George Specter, and that was on his 1927 naturalization papers. Now, I bring this up because it's interesting. His mother... Bertha, her father, also changed his name to George Spector when completing his naturalization papers in 1923. So because both papers for both men on different sides of the family, the father and the mother, they used the name Spector and they were witnessed by the same person, an Isidore Spector. Okay, the similarities in the name and the background it, it, it's there's speculation they were related, possibly first cousins that got wow. married. So, so Phil Spector's parents may have been first cousins, which was more popular in those days. It was more common, I should say, in those days. But now that would be very frowned upon. No, uh, no wonder he ra- they raised a the killer. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, a, little too, a little too close right there. Wasn't uh, wasn't Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor first cousins? Yeah, they, that was yeah. another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Used to be more common, but now people are like, ew, you know, I'm not doing that. Um, now, his parents were married in 1934, and they moved into the Soundview section of the Bronx. That's in the South Bronx. Um, yes. In 1935, they had their first child, Shirley Specter, uh, And then five years later, Phil came along in 19, 19... Well, four years later, 1939, 1940. Uh, Phil loved music at an early age uh the popular music of the time when he was growing up was like sinatra bing crosby hoagie carmichael uh all that stuff was played often by his family in the house but he was you know he was living in a a fairly mixed neighborhood in those days it was it was mostly the south bronx in those days was uh you had a lot of eastern europeans so a lot of eastern european jews uh, and also black people were moving in from the South and, you know, to, to, to work in a lot of the steel factories and stuff that were in the Bronx in those days. Quite a different place than it is now. But he was influenced by the, the, the black R&B music that he would hear on the streets. OK, yeah. so he had like this, you know, a mixture of things going on to influence him. Now, he had a pretty, you know, happy childhood, uh, but he did have bad asthma. Okay, so he had to live with that. Um, but in 1949, when he was uh, about nine years old, tragedy would strike the family because his father, Benjamin, would commit suicide. Uh, he gave no notice of it, gave no, uh, didn't leave a note, didn't give any you know, idea that he was going to do it. He just left home one day in his car and put a hose on the tailpipe, put the other end in the car and asphyxiated himself on a Bronx side street. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I think for a while, Phil may not have been told the whole thing, but I think eventually as he got older, you know, the story came out as to what happened. 
um, the family was totally traumatized and they ended up having a tombstone for him. Now you got to pay attention to this because it, it comes important later. The tombstone had the words, Ben Spector, father, husband, to know him was to love him. Okay. Now keep that in mind, that little expression right there, because it comes in later. Now, Phil, like I said, he always had asthma and the the air pollution in the South Bronx didn't help him. So in, in 1953, Phil's mother moved the entire family to Los Angeles. Uh, she found a job working as a seamstress. And in 1954, Phil attended Fairfax High School. Now, Fairfax High School is famous. A lot of people have come out of there that have been in the rock and roll industry, uh, musicians, producers, people like that. A lot have come out of for some reason. I think it has a nickname like Rock and Roll High School or something like that. Uh, it was also a high school known for a large Jewish uh population in the school and phil fit right in there being being a a jewish person that he was um he learned how to play guitar and he started to perform in talent shows in the school and he was getting well known as a teenager that you know was into this this rock and roll scene that was just starting pretty much okay uh you know this was 1954 55 56 you had elvis Okay, guys like that coming up, Johnny Cash. Uh, I'm sure he was into a lot of the, uh, oh, Dion, doo-wop stuff, things like that was a, was a big influence. Now, he had yeah, definitely doo-wop stuff. Yeah, was... absolutely, yeah. Now, he connected with these aspiring musicians in the school, uh, one named Sandy Nelson, Marshall Lieb, and Annette Kleinbard. Annette was a singer. Um, and they put together a band called the Teddy Bears. And Phil Blake. Pussies. <laughs> Phil played guitar, okay, and wrote the songs. Um, he started at this time, and this is something that could probably only had happened in that era. As yeah. a te- as a teenager, he started hanging around Gold Star Studios in Hollywood. Uh, there was a producer named Stan Ross who co-owned the studios. He began to just kind of teach Spectre the ropes in in, yeah. in, rec- in record production. How many yeah. people? How many people could do that today? Right? No one. No one. And that's a know? free. And it, and it was a free education. Exactly. But I think he also helped the guy out too, right? Like oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I think he 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 worked as a gopher for him. You know, go get his coffee, yeah. shit like that. You know. But, but um, in return, look what he got. Right. Right. Now this guy Stan Ross was a, a well-known producer. The studio worked with you know high-end celebrities and musicians and stuff. Um, he always said, Phil always said that Stan was like a huge influence on what oh, would yeah. later on what would later become his his own style. Okay, um, in nineteen in nineteen fifty eight, Mike. Sorry, to cut you off, but you sure. look at him. He lost his dad, so this guy was almost like a father figure and teacher. Good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I didn't think of it that way. Yeah, he, he, he probably became more. He became probably more like a mentor almost. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, taught him how to use the equipment. And then, you know, Phil really just invented his wall of sound. We'll get into that later. Yeah. But but I mean, he he knew how to work the equipment based on what Stan Ross showed him. Okay? Yeah, you got to you got to start somewhere, man, you know. Right. And he would always go back to Gold Star Recordings. Wow. OK, uh, that 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 studio became a, a, you know, a second home to, to Phil Spector. Most of his work. Almost all of it was, especially the early stuff, was done there. Okay, wow. 
so he knew the board. He knew the equipment. And he, and he never did George Harrison do anything in there? No. Okay. No, no. At that point, that was uh, all Apple, Apple Studios and Abbey Road and all that. Okay. Uh, yeah. Now, in 58, the Teddy Bears recorded a Spectre-written song called Don't You Worry, My Little Pet. Uh, it did did okay. Uh, they then signed on to a three single deal with Error Records, and it, they were promised more singles if the songs did well. Um, their next so a recording single deal is just single, no album. This right, is no, this right. Is just... This was right. This was a day when <clears throat> albums weren't weren't as popular. People made them more on the jazz and classical side of things. Yeah. Um, they didn't really rock and roll really didn't make too many albums at this point, unless you were really huge, like an Elvis or something like that. Um, okay. But he would, the, the teddy bears would make an album. We'll get into that in a second. Okay. Um, they, he, he penned a song that ended up being uh, a huge hit. Uh, it went it went to uh, number one on Billboard charts in December 1958, and that song is called "To Know Him Is to Love Him." Yep. All right. Now, remember, I said what was on his father's tombstone. Yeah, to know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was inspired. It's almost kind of, it's almost kind of, you know, ghoulish in a way, right? The, to have the name, you know, the, that the song name be something that was written on your father's gravestone yeah that's fucking weird yeah it is kind of weird um you know what whatever it was nobody knew that okay he was the only one that knew and maybe some people close to him but uh the out the, the song would go to number one in december of 58 and it would actually sell over a million copies by the end of that year that's pretty uh, good yeah but it would be their last hit wow <laughs> It was pretty much the end of them. They did put out a full LP called The Teddy Bears Sing and a few more singles, but none even reached the top 100. And the band would break up by 1959. Um, but it was a good experience for Phil, okay, making that album because while recording it, the Teddy Bears album, uh, Spectre met a guy named Lester Sill. Uh, he was a former promotion man who was a mentor to Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, the up and coming songwriters that wrote for every, everybody back in that, in those days, uh, Phil had put together a project called the Spectre three and still with his partner, Lee Hazelwood, who became another well-known producer supported the project. Okay. He's, they were going to work together, but in 1960, Sil sent Phil Spectre to New York city to work with Lieber and Stoller. He, he co-wrote a song for uh, Benny King, who was a member of the Drifters. He co-wrote it with Jerry Lieber, and it was called Spanish Harlem. Uh, you know that song. Yeah. Now, Phil also plays guitar on the Drifters song on Broadway. Yep. So he was, he was getting in with the Brill Building, uh, the songwriters there, and everything that was going on back east here in New York. Um, he began his hand at producing at this time as well. He produced someone named Ronnie Crawford, uh, the famous Laverne Baker, Ruth Brown, and Billy Storm. He also produced uh, the Top Notes with their original recording of Twist and Shout. And Lieber and Stoller recommended Spectre to produce Ray Peterson's Corrine Corina, which was a, a big hit at the time. That got to number nine in January of 61. Uh, later on that year, he produced a number seven hit by Curtis Lee, 
called Pretty Little Angel Eyes. It was kind of like a doo-wop song at the end of the doo-wop era. It was kind of like at the very end of that. Yeah, he pretty did cool. a lot of, he was pretty, not an influential doo-wop. And then later on, he moved on to pretty much rock and roll. But he did like gospel, he did a little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had his hands in all kinds of stuff. And, and there's, I mean, there's even some recordings that he didn't use uh, his full name as producer. Sometimes he would use Phil Harvey. Yeah. Okay, something like that. Uh, on little, you know, 40, you know, little 45 singles that didn't go anywhere. Yeah. So he was really learning at this point and, and learning fast. And he was only he was only like 20 years old. 21 yeah, years he, old. He was he very young. Got some names under his belt there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, he would be called back to Hollywood that year to produce one of Lester Sills' acts called the Paris Sisters. And he recorded and produced a track called Be My Boy. But Capitol Records, who were supposed to be interested in it, and also Liberty Records that were going to be interested in it, actually both turned it down. Uh, apparently they either they didn't like the production or they didn't like the song, whatever it was. So Sill and Lee Hazelwood started their own label called Greg Mark Records just to release that song. Okay, uh, it bombed. It only got to number fifty-six. But the follow-up track called "I Love How You Love Me," which was written by Specter, was a hit, and it got to number five by the Paris Sisters. Yep. Now in late sixty-one. Uh, this is when he was really ready to go full blast out of the gates here. He started the label with Lester Silk called Phil Less Records. Okay. Combination of their two names. And uh, through a publishing company called Hill and Range, he found three groups that he wanted to work with. One was called the Duquesnes. One was called the Creations. And the third one was called the Crystals. Now, the first two Duquesne's and the Creations ended up going with a different label. But Phil managed to acquire the Crystals for his new label. And their first single that he put out was, was called There's No Other Like My Baby. And it was a, a total success hitting number 20. And their next release was called Uptown. And that would get to number 13. Uh, if you remember, we talked with Lala Brooks. And you know she talked about those early years with the Crystals. And the uh, all the sh craziness that went on recording these things. <laughs> great, great show we did that day. Um, even with a new label to use, Phil still kind of freelanced. His in in late '61, Spectre started the label with Lester Sill called yeah. Phil Les Records. Now, through a publishing company called Hill and Range, he found three groups he wanted to work with. One was called the Duquesnes. One was called the Creations. And the last one was called The Crystals. Now, the first two, the Duquesnes and the Creations, they ended up signing to different labels. But Phil managed to acquire The Crystals for the new label. And right out of the gate, they would be a big hit. Their first single was called There's No Other Like My Baby. Yeah. That was uh, number 20, got to on the charts. And their next release was called Uptown, and that would get to number 13. Now, even with a new label, to use Phil, uh, to use Phil still kind of freelanced his production services around in, in 62, he produced a song called secondhand love by Connie Francis, which reached number seven. He also worked, uh, again with Atlantic records artists, artist, uh, Laverne Baker 
Ruth Brown, and there was also an up-and-coming Broadway star named Jean Dushan, who was a big, uh, who was a, became very famous later on. Now he also took a job with Liberty Records as an A and R producer, uh, artist and repertoire, and he was in a sense a talent scout for that label. Now while working at Liberty, he heard a song written by Gene Pitney. Okay, now Gene Pitney was a guy uh, who. Phil had wrote and produced a song for earlier called Every Breath I Take. Yeah. About a year, you know, year earlier, he had worked with him. And of course, he would, Gene Pitney would go on to bigger hits like Town Without Pity and things like that. But he was also writing for people. All right. And Pitney wrote this song called He's a Rebel. And he was writing this for Vicky Carr, who was a, a popular singer at the time. But Spectre liked it so much that he quickly got together some people at Gold Star Studios. Uh, particularly, he had been working with Darlene Love, okay? She was in a singing group called The Blossoms. And he said, you know, we're going to give you, we're gonna, you're going to do this song. And it, it was He's a Rebel, which she's well known for, for the, you know, in these days, still to this day. Um, but he rushed released it to beat Vicky Carr's version coming out. Uh, That's kind of fucked up. Well, not only is that fucked up, what he did was he he didn't call it uh, He's a Rebel by Darlene Love and the Blossoms. He he called it The Crystals. The Crystals, yeah. All right. And, and, you know, it wasn't The Crystals. The Crystals were a New York City-based group. He was out in California. And, you know, if you remember, we talked with Lala Brooks, who was in The Crystals. And yeah. she, she said they were all on tour doing their older songs and, and, and all of a sudden the song came on the radio in the car and it was number one and it was, he's a rebel by the crystals. <laughs> it's, and, and they're in the car listening to this and none of them are singing on the record. Okay. So it's crazy. I mean, it was very, I mean, the, the, you know, the business was always underhanded. No, 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 none of those people made any money. Okay. Even Darlene Love didn't make money. Phil made the money. Okay. And, uh, you know, he did that several times with, with bands. He did it with the Ronettes. He did it with uh, the Crystals. Uh, he, would, he would hold back songs and, and say he was going to give it to you and then give it to another artist. Okay, it just, I don't know. That's, that was part of his, his uh, eccentricities, I guess I should say. You know what I mean? So the time, by the time He's a Rebel went to number one, uh, Lester Sill was kind of forced out of the company by Phil. All right. And he had the whole label to himself. They had kind of a falling out. He created an act called Bobby Sox in the Blue Jeans, which featured Darlene Love, okay, from the Blossoms, and someone named Fanita James. And there was another ex Blossom named Gloria Jones. Okay. Uh, she ended up not being part of Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans. Do you remember do you remember what what who Gloria Jones was? We talked uh, about her before. Yeah, a while ago. I can't yeah. remember. I'm shocked. Oh, she, <laughs> she well she did the original Tainted Love, okay? Uh she would do that like a year or two later. But she ended up being the uh, you can say common law wife or girlfriend of Mark Bolton. Okay, oh, yeah? remember, remember she was in his band 
and oh, yeah. uh, she was driving the car when they when they got in well, the accident. Yeah, when, yeah. When, yeah, that's yeah. When he fucking the car that pretty much he died in. Yeah, the car that killed him. Yeah. So you know that was ten years later. She would that would happen, but she got her start in the Blossoms. Wow. Okay. But she went on to other things. She she got away from Phil Spector and all that stuff after that. Now Bobby Sheen was an artist that Phil had worked with at Liberty Records. So Bobby Sox was Bobby Sheen and Darlene Love kind of on lead vocals with yeah. Finita James in the background. Now, they had hits like uh, Zippity Doodah, the Disney song. Yeah. Uh, that got to number eight. And then uh, a song called Why Do Lovers Break Each Other's Hearts. That got to number 38. And then Not Too Young to Get Married got to number 63. So they did moderately well, Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans. Through 1963, though, Phil would produce more hits for the original Crystals. All right. Uh, he would come out with Do Do Run Run with La- yeah. Lala, Lala Brooks singing that. Uh, also, Then He Kissed Me with Lala singing that as well. Yeah. Uh, both of them were smash hits, top 10. Uh, I think Then He Kissed Me got close to number one. Uh, but soon he would find his new muse and love, and that would be Miss Veronica Bennett from Harlem. Okay, uh, Veronica Bennett, also known as Ronnie from Ronnie and Ronnie Spector, eventually. Yeah. Okay. Now, when Phil first met the Ronettes, he had already seen them perform at the Brooklyn Fox Theater, and was was very impressed with them. Uh, he was very smitten with Ronnie's voice right away. Uh, they were signed to a label called Colpix Records, and that label wasn't doing anything for them, so they took a chance and called Phil Spector directly one day to see if he had any interest. And he invited them down. He was happy to hear from them. He invited them down to the Mirror Sound Studios in, in New York City. And within a few minutes of Ronnie singing, I, I think it was, uh, might have been um, uh, uh, Frankie Lyman's song, okay? Uh, she was a huge Frankie Lyman fan, and she did that as an audition. And a few minutes into it, he just jumped up from his piano where he's playing along with them and uh, was like, you know, that's the voice. That's what I've been looking for all this time. Okay. Now, originally, his plan was to just sign Ronnie as a solo act. But her mom said, no, if you want Ronnie, you got to take the other girls, too. It's all we're we're a group. It's a package deal. It's, it's It's a package deal. So. He didn't. Uh, he didn't argue. Okay, he, he wanted Ronnie, and he realized what he, the, the talent he had, so he agreed. Now, the first song the Rottenheads recorded for Spectre was the Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich, two other huge songwriters at the time, a song written by them called "Why Don't They Let Us Fall in Love." Uh, they were brought out to California to record that at Gold Star. Uh, they recorded more songs for Spectre, covers of the Twist covers of the Watusi. Uh, they did a version of Mashed Potato Time and a song called Hot Pastrami. Uh, those four songs, though, would not be given to the Ronettes. They would actually be given to the Crystals to use. And the song, Why Don't They Let Us Fall in Love, was actually shelved. So Phil, in all his craziness, he took them out to California, made them record, and then just didn't use any of it. Okay. Wow. He, had, he had something else in mind. All right. Now that song would be Be My Baby. And on July 15th, 1963, 
The Ronettes recorded uh, the Barry Greenwich and Spectre written song, Be My Baby, at Gold Star Studios. But it was released the following month, and it got to number two. You would think it would go to number one, right? But nope. Yeah, only it got, went to only number got, two. Only got to number two. Not sure what, what kept it out, but there must have been something big. Um, in 63, Phil would marry Annette Marar the lead vocalist from that side project he had called the Spectre three. Yeah. Um, but not long after meeting Ronnie from the Ronettes, he began to have an affair with her. Now in Ronnie's 1990 memoir called be my baby, how I su- survived mascara, miniskirts and madness. She claims that Phil kept it from her about his marriage that she didn't know. Okay. Uh, when they first started getting together that he was married. Um, but they would end up, uh, it got kind of out there, okay, that they were together. But uh, by 19, that went on for about five years, and in that time he would get divorced, and they would marry in 1968. We'll talk more, we'll talk more about that later. Um, Phil was known originally as a producer of hit singles, but the yeah. first time he put out kind of all of his efforts into making an LP, he would use the entire Phil Les roster to make a Christmas album. Yep. Now, it was released. Uh, it was actually called A Christmas Gift for You from Phil Les Records. And it was released a few days after the assassination of Kennedy in November of, of 63. It just happened to come How out at that time. That? Yeah. So he, he had mixed feelings about the release. Uh, you know, how can we have a, a, a Christmas album? come out when the president just got assassinated so he pulled it from the shelves now it would kind of be lost for a while uh it never really had a chance in that year to take off i think it would have had he kept it you know in the in the stores okay i think it would have taken off because i think it would have taken off too i think it would have been fine i think he's just you know he's one of those guys well everybody yeah i mean i don't know if he was a and I don't know what his politics were, but but he but he, you know, I, I think the nation was in mourning and he felt like something so festive maybe wouldn't be appropriate. So he pulled it, you know, uh, I mean, it's kind of hard to understand today in the world we live in. Like if you have president, he you know, when he got assassinated, the whole country stopped. Everybody you've seen that, you know, everybody watching on TV and everybody crying and all that. So I guess in a way, maybe it was appropriate. I don't know. But over the years, it would it would you know gain in popularity, uh, even though it was pulled for a while and it was hard to get. By the early seventies, it would be re-released again on Apple Records. I'll talk about that later. Um, and then since then, I would say since the early seventies when it came out on Apple, uh, it's always been a standard at Christmas time. We always hear those songs. Yeah, you know. So um, September twenty eighth, nineteen sixty three. The Ronettes appeared at the Cow Palace near San Francisco. Now, also on this bill was an act called the Righteous Brothers. And Spectre, who was conducting the bands for all of the acts that night, was very impressed with Bill Medley and Bobby Hatfield. Okay, those were the two guys in, in the Righteous Brothers. Yeah, they were and, fucking phenomenal singers. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> phenomenal singers. Now, he immediately... I mean, he liked them so much that he bought out their contract with Moon Glow Records right away. Okay. Just threw money at the label and said, we're taking them. 
and he signed them right up to Phil S. Records. In early 65, he had uh, the song You've Lost That Love and Feeling come out. And it was the single, it was, it was the label's second number one hit. Okay. Now, three more major hits followed. Uh, one song called Just Once in My Life that got to number nine. Unchained Mel- Melody that got to number four. And a song called Ebb Tide that got to number five. If you listen to these songs, and of course, you lost that love and feeling, you get chills. I mean, the voices on these guys. Okay. It's like, how did he, you know, again, it's, it's like you look at them and they were like skinny, two skinny white guys like Rick Astley or something like that. But okay. they had the voices of <laughs> angels. They, they, had, they had the vo- Yeah. I mean, incredible. And the way they, they bounced them off each other. Okay. The two of them and the way they, you know, one would sing one verse, one would sing the other. It was, it's beautiful music. Um, Mike, you want to hear something funny? Because Unchained Melody became a number one hit later on when Ghost came out. Yeah, it was on the Ghost soundtrack with Patrick Swayze, right? Yeah. And uh, who else was in there? Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg and uh, Denise Moore. De- uh, Demi Moore. Yeah, that's Demi right. Moore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Demi, however you're supposed to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, yeah, that was, I mean, but it was, it was a hit, okay? You know, it was always a popular song. Now, the sound of, uh, well, what, what, what would happen next is, is there was a, I don't know if it was, it was Bill Medley, uh, kind of wanting to take control of of the of the righteous brothers maybe he felt phil had a little too much control over the production and the writing and things like that but they uh they would jump ship okay uh basically they had a falling out specter kind of became disinterested in the group uh, and he ended up selling their contract and all the master recordings to verve records that's crazy okay? yeah i mean he had gold and he just sold it you know so, however, uh, they couldn't they couldn't get away with, you know, changing their sound too much because they were so well known for that production. So Bill Medley uh, for Verve Records, they came out with that the song in 1966 called You're My Soul and My Heart's Inspiration, which was not a Phil Spector production. They weren't even involved with his label anymore. But if you listen to it, it sounds like a a wall of sound kind of production. Yeah. Uh, and that actually got to number one. So it was really an example of how the sound Phil Spector made on the records was so much a part of the group. They couldn't change that sound in any way and, and be popular. Okay. So Phil Spector, uh, his final signing to Phil S records was Ike and Tina Turner. And that was in April of 1966. Yep. Uh, the, the track that he did with Tina called River Deep and Mountain High uh, is considered by many and also by him as his best work. Okay. Um, but the Tina Turner only track, Ike's, Ike's not on it, uh, got only to number 88 in America. It would do better in Europe. It got to number three in Britain. It did well in Netherlands and places like that. But uh, something happened after. And first of all, that's that's one of his one one of his greatest songs. Absolutely. Um, in fact, some other people have gone ahead and done it, and 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 no matter who does it, it's always a good song. There's even a punk version of it by the Saints, the Australian band from the seventies, that they do a great version of it. But something happened with Phil after this. I think he he expected that to be 
such a huge hit and it wasn't. And I think it kind of blew his mind a little bit. And he started to become more of a recluse. Okay. At that time. Uh, and that would only get worse in later years. We'll talk about that. Uh, he kind of wanted to get out of the business in a way in 67. He attempted to broker a deal to move Phil S records over to A and M have them take it. Uh, the deal actually never happened. And, 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 Phil just let the label go. He, he didn't have any interest in it anymore. Um, he was already becoming more of a recluse. Um, he married Ronnie in 1968, and he kind of just temporarily withdrew from the public eye. Okay. Uh, all he did between 68 and 69 was uh, he did a cameo playing himself on I Dream of Jeannie. Okay. And uh, he also was in the beginning, if you remember, yeah, the of, drug of, leader. of right, of the film Easy Rider, where he's he's the guy uh buying the cocaine. Yeah. Okay. So um he was a cocaine dealer actually. Um now um his I gotta mention about the, the marriage with Ronnie here for a second. They were married in sixty eight and immediately they moved into this big mansion he called the castle. Okay, and literally the day after they got married, they're in the house. Ronnie wakes up the next day to construction going on. Okay, in the house, outside the house. And Phil has a crew putting bars on the windows. (laughs) Okay, yeah. (laughs) Well, well. It began a four-year nightmare for Ronnie Spector. Okay, uh, it's it's all laid out in her book "Be My Baby" uh, that she wrote about thirty years ago. Um, it, you know, it, it, it it's it's incredible. I mean, he was so paranoid. If you remember when we talked about the Ronettes in uh, in the in the the show we did on them and the Shangri and the Shangri Las. Yeah, uh, we were talking about how the Ronettes went on tour with uh, with the Rolling Stones, and they were actually the Stones were actually uh, opening for them. This was in England, and you know Ronnie said something like, "How come you guys don't talk to us?" And Mick was like, "Oh well, you know we got worried we're not supposed to fraternize with you." So even going back to '63, he was he had this tight rein on her. Uh, she was a young girl, okay. I guess she was in awe of him in some ways. He was he was already well known as a amazing producer and what they could what he could do for them. And uh, but if you read her book, I mean, uh, he was he tortured her. You know, she wasn't allowed to go out. She wasn't allowed to have friends. She wasn't allowed to talk on the phone. She couldn't sing. Uh, she wasn't allowed to do anything. And uh, she was miserable, and, and she started drinking a lot. And, and you know, what else are you going to do if you're just sitting around the house all day? You know? Yeah, you're fucking trapped. You can't yeah. do anything. Yeah, yeah. And the only one she was allowed to see on any regular basis was her mom. Her mom was allowed to come to the house. He had cameras everywhere. He could watch her from other rooms, okay, closed circuit TV, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and he, you know, he, he presented her, I think in like, not too long after they were married, uh, they, they adopted a child. Okay. 
Uh, and then I believe he presented them, presented her shortly after with twins as a Christmas present. <laughs> the guy's fucking weird, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he, how, I mean, how do you get twins for somebody for Christmas? <laughs> I, I got to give for you twins. What the yeah, fuck? Yeah, exactly. I don't twin, want tw- twins. Twin, twin boys, okay, which, you know, sadly, she would lose custody of in her divorce from him later on. Okay. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but this was, you know, 68 was the beginning of the, of the nightmare for Ronnie. It was kind of the beginning of a, of a, of a reclusive life that Phil would, would turn to. Okay. And he also drank a lot. Really. He really started to drink a lot. I'm sure there was some other things like cocaine involved in there and things like that. But I mean, he was known for, you know, within a year or two at the, of that time, by say 1970, he would need to start his day with something like 20 cherry brandies. Okay. That's a hell of a way to start your day. Yeah. Before you would, he would even get out of the house and go to a studio and start working with somebody. But, but you know what's funny? After all that, he, he, he did wind it up putting it together and making like that combat and doing stuff again, you know. Well, you know, if anybody was a was a was a functional alcoholic, pretty much it was him. Okay, yeah. you know when he when he was in his groove, you couldn't stop him. Now in in now would be like a, a an incredible, uh, incredibly creative period coming up because in early 1970, Alan Klein, who was the manager of the Beatles, brought Spectre to England. Now he'd been associated with the Beatles before. All right. Uh, when the Beatles arrived for the first time in America, when they get off the plane, a lot of people don't notice when, it, when he, when they, when you see them coming down the plane. Okay. If you watch the whole clip of it, if you don't just see a short version of it, Phil Spector's on that plane. He got yeah. off the plane. He was in England in, 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 in February of 64, January of 64, uh, basically hanging out with them. Uh, he wasn't recording with them, but they were big fans of his. They loved the Ronettes, okay, especially John Lennon. And uh, he, he was in the country because the Ronettes were over there too, okay? And, you know, they made friends. Now, supposedly they, there was a running joke among the Beatles, okay? The Beatles had a very dry sense of humor. Um, they, they, they said that, that Phil was the only guy they ever met that walked to America, and that's because on the whole flight over there, their first flight to America, he's on the plane with them and he didn't sit down. He paced back and forth on the plane with them, animated, telling them stories, partying, drinking. Everybody was fucked up, having a good time on the plane. OK, so in a sense, he walked to America because he, he was pacing back and forth on the plane the whole time. Wow. Yeah. Now. Um, uh, OK, now. One thing, too, you got to mention briefly is 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 not only was he involved with the Beatles over there in those early years, 63, 64, he was involved with the Stones, too. Like like he plays guitar on the single for the last time. This would be the last time. OK, uh, a lot of people don't know that. OK, and only I'm not sure if he has a credit even, um, but he was going to be working with Phil. Uh, Phil was going to be working with them as a as a producer but it 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 never really materialized they just kind of like performed together and some stuff made it onto the singles now um he ended up 
producing the John Lennon solo single, Instant Karma. Okay. And that got to number three. Now, Spectre was then invited by Lennon and George Harrison to do something with the abandoned Let It Be album. All right. Now, if you don't know the story, they had recorded Let It Be uh, around 1969 or so. Um, And it was such a mess in the studio. The band was falling apart. Uh, they were arguing. There was a lot of fighting in the direction, you know, about the direction they were going. Uh, George Harrison was starting to bitch about not having enough say in the band. Lots of things were going wrong. And they recorded this album and it just sounded like shit. And it was all inco- incohesive. And But there was something there. Now, what they did is they abandoned the project and actually made a whole other album. And that ended up being Abbey Road. All right, and, and Abbey, that was a good thing. Uh, well, yeah, but even though Abbey Road was recorded second, it was released first in in '69. Okay, so Harrison and Lennon asked Phil Spector, "Look, take these tapes that we got and see if you could do anything with it. All right, we want to come out with another album. All right, and it's probably going to be the last one. Okay, so he started working with it." And, um, you know, most of the band thought the recordings were unusable, but he made some significant changes to the arrangements and some of the actual sounds on some of the songs because he had all the master tapes. Um, Let It Be ended up being released a month after the Beatles broke up in 1970, and it did the one number one single on it, The Long and Winding Road. Now, Paul McCartney hates this, okay? Paul McCartney was pissed about how Spectre changed the sound on that song. There's a lot of overdubbing on it and stuff like that. It's very, it's very produced. Okay. The whole album is actually, but especially the long and winding road. Um, But, but, but I kind of lean towards John Lennon on this because John Lennon uh, defended Spectre in an interview that year. And he said he was given the shittiest load of badly recorded shit with a lousy feeling toward it ever. And he made something out of it. He did a great job. Okay. And I kind of feel that way about Let It Be. Uh, I've, 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 I used to not like that album at all. Okay. Uh, and I did buy the, the album about, oh, God, it must have been about 15, 16 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. Uh, they released, it was called Let It Be Naked. And it was the kind of like the original tapes before Spectre added stuff to it and i think it's a good album they 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 probably didn't have to change a lot so sometimes you look at it and you're like well specter overdid it but i don't really think so i i I think that he had stuff that was pretty might have been unusable at the time and they were breaking up so why not try to do something with this material and they did and ended up having it went to number one i don't know if if mccartney was just pissed off because, you know, it wasn't him doing the whole thing. Okay. You know, uh, they had always worked with George Martin and Martin wasn't involved with it, obviously. Um, but I think it was probably more of an ego thing with, with, with McCartney. That's just my opinion. I don't know. What do I know? Yeah. But, it probably uh, was an ego. If it's McCartney, those guys forget about it. Oh, that's like, a, that's so many egos in one room. Yeah. Especially by that year. Okay, yeah. not not the early years when they were all buddy buddy and shit, but you know, well even then, 
you know, um, you know what's funny about bands is is bands like that that you see, you think they're all buddy buddy, they hang out, okay, they party with each other. It's not always true, you know. Sometimes there's like that other side to it, you know. But by the time the Beatles broke up, they 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 couldn't even be in a room together without wanting to kill each other. Nah, yeah. Now after Let It Be came out, uh, George Harrison asked Phil Spector to produce his epic solo record, All Things Must Pass. Uh, you know, we, we, we did a great show on that last year about the making of it. Yeah, that, that, was, was, that, was, that was one album. of my, that was a triple album. Triple album, uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, that was one of my favorite podcasts we ever did, by the way. Um, and he would, you know, Spectre would give this like almost symphonic feel to the, to the three records, okay? Uh, they would go to number one on the charts, okay? Which is kind of amazing because no one ever really did a three album record before okay nothing that ever sold okay as much as that did um i think apple records was probably like you know you sure you want to do three because it's a lot of work to put into it, a lot of money to put into it are you going to get it back and he did he went yeah, to number one it was, was, it was they had some great songs there like yeah Morris yeah but did. if you remember i mean so many of those songs were meant for beatles records Okay, you know, George was was writing like crazy, but but John and Paul didn't really take him that seriously. Yeah, you know the, what? The 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 the, the freaking apostle. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I'm glad that album came out. Okay, because it's like such an amazing record. It's 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 just like the things that were rejected almost by the Beatles were rejected. Yeah. I guess. Could you imagine if you know they had? My sweet lord, instead of like when I'm 64. Oh, that would have been <laughs> yeah, Sergeant Pepper would have been a, a way better record, and it's still oh, considered one of the lord, greatest. Sergeant but... Pepper, that would have been fucking off yeah. the chart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it, to think that he had all that stuff lined up, okay, just in his mind or written down, okay, and and ready to go, and they didn't want it, okay. It's it's really like the amount of talent there is unbelievable. Now, the two major hits off the All Things Must Pass was My Sweet Lord, which got to number one. Yeah. And also What Is Life, which got to number 10. Yeah. Now, the one downside to this recording and is that Spectre really was only involved in the final mix of it. He didn't have his hands in the recording too much. Okay. And the reason that is is because he was like drunk half the time. Okay. He was, he was, he was really lit up. Uh, one time there's a story George Harrison told years later where he had to go up to the roof of the hotel that Phil was staying at and climb down, I guess a fire escape or something to his window and get him out of bed and get him, you know, get him. He, he wasn't answering the door. He went up to the roof and came down. And just got in there and and had to get him up and it, it yeah, took him wake the wake the yeah. fuck up <laughs> yeah and, and, I mean he had to, he had to literally go and buy him cherry brandy to get him moving okay just to get him started for the day so later that year okay uh, after the big hit of all things must pass uh, Spectre co-produced John Lennon's Plastic Ono band uh, the production on this record was very different than his usual wall of sound. Uh, it was kind of more sparse, a little simpler sounding, and it worked. Okay, it did very well, that record. Now, also, through George Harrison, the connection with him, 
He also produced the debut single for Derek and the Dominoes, a song called Tell the Truth. Now, if, if you remember, Derek and the Dominoes were just starting to get together based upon All Things Must Pass. The, yeah. the, member, the members of that band were on that album. Yeah. And out of that, they started Derek and the Dominoes with, with Eric Clapton and everything. Now, the song Tell the Truth is a great song, and, but for some reason, the band disliked the sound and they actually pulled the record. Okay, they didn't want it released for some reason. Yeah, that's wow. Yeah, it is wild. But at that point, Spectre was made head of A&R for Apple Records. Okay, now he held that post for about a year during which he co-produced John Lennon's 1971 single Power to the People, which got to number 11, and his chart-topping album Imagine with the title track Imagine hitting number three. So he was involved with all of that, okay? The, the, the last Beatles record, the, the solo stuff coming out, singles and albums. In um, 1971, later that year, he, he co-produced George Harrison's uh, solo single, Bangladesh, which got to number 23. And the song Bangladesh is actually considered rock and roll's first charity single, okay? It was to bring attention to the genocide going on in bangladesh with eastern pakistan and it was a complicated thing but uh the money was going to all of that now yeah harrison had written another song called try some buy some okay and it's a song about drugs okay yeah and it was uh the intent was to have ronnie specter sing it and she would also be signed to apple for a full-length solo album Okay, Uh, but it never materialized. It got released as a single. Uh, Didn't do well. It only got to number 77. It it really was one of the biggest flops uh, that Phil Spector was ever involved in. Um, Ronnie has been on record saying that she liked the song, but found it very hard to sing it. And it is if you listen to it, it's a difficult song to sing the way the lyrics are. Yeah. Uh, George Harrison kind of had a teacher it. Uh, how to do it and and he even said like i don't even know how i'm gonna sing it it was it was kind of a difficult song the lyrics are great um you mentioned david bowie earlier i think bowie did a version of it too like on a b-side somewhere i think i've heard that yeah i've heard that yeah now in august of 71 this whole year was was big for him um he oversaw george harrison's organized concert for bangladesh Okay, yeah. these, these were two shows at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Uh, the shows resulted in another triple album going to number one. Okay. Um, and it featured many, many, many artists. Okay. Now, Spectre, to create a wall of sound, he did something he never did before. He mic'd the live audience. He okay. Had four- he had like 44 yeah. mics, some ridiculous somewhere, amount somewhere of mics. between 40 and 44 mics were used yeah. throughout, the, throughout the garden to get the, the sound from all different angles, okay, and then mix it at, as a big wall of sound in the studio. And uh, it, it sounds great, that album. He would get a Grammy for it, okay. Yeah. Um, now, that was something that was never done before. He never yeah. recorded live in that way. Um, interesting enough, though, just as a side note with that, that Bangladesh stuff is he, Harrison um, had a lot of problems putting it out. 
in releasing it, uh, even though it did go to number one, the record companies for all the all these people that they were involved with because they were all with different record companies, everybody was breaking balls on releasing it, on allowing it to happen. Okay? Yeah, because like, you got the artists from other fucking labels. Yeah, but it was a live show. Okay, it wasn't like an album or anything like that. But the, everybody wanted a cut. Okay? Yeah, because they knew. Right, but they, but you know, it was meant for charity. So these greedy fucking record companies didn't didn't care about the charity aspect of it. You know, bastards, bastards. What are you gonna do now? John Lennon kept Phil Spector on uh, later in '71 to do the production for "Happy Christmas." War is over. All right. Uh, he also produced the the poorly received solo album called Sometime in New York City. Uh, I, I don't know. I, 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 everybody seems to hate that album. Uh, I don't know. I think it sounds great. It's a, it's a great production. Okay. Um, it's a great production, but there's something wrong with it. Like, it's not well, people, people have a problem with the song Woman is the Nigger of the World. Okay, on there. All yeah. right. And, and that's a big I problem. Mean, yeah, I guess. Well, if you judge it by today's standards, yeah. I, I don't know. I think it's a decent song. It's it sounds good, but you know, he's saying the N-word, but there's a meaning behind it. So yeah. I won't go into that. I actually had an argument when I put it up on the Rock Show group page a couple of weeks ago about it. So I don't feel like talking about it. But uh both of those collaborations, uh Happy Christmas and Sometime in New York City, featured Yoko Ono. All right. Uh, in late 72. Fuck that bitch too. Yeah. Late 72, Apple Records would reissue A Christmas Gift for You, the original Christmas record that came out in 63 that Spectre pulled. Uh, yeah. and, and since then, it's had, you know, a lot of commercial success. It got great critical response to it um, since 73, basically. All right. Early 73. You, you want to hear something crazy? Phil Spector even say that after Harris died, he said that him, when he worked with Harris and, and uh, Lennon, he thought that was his most creative period of all time. That's true. That's true. Um, and if you look at what was going on, okay, what he was involved with, I would, I would probably agree with that because he was stretching the boundaries of what he was doing already. Yeah. Okay. By, 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 Working with the Beatles, uh, putting the Let It Be stuff into something listenable, okay? And also coming up with uh, the right kind of sound for Lennon, the right kind of sound for, for Harrison, uh, and doing it multiple things, a lot of Lennon stuff, a couple of Harrison things. You yeah, know? but think about what he did. He took two, three, two, he took a fucking... Um... And two chart albums, two two two, three, two, two two triple albums to number one. That's insane. That's like that's like almost impossible. You couldn't even do that today. Nobody would put out a triple album. It's crazy. You know who would put out a triple album? Who, who would have the balls to do it? Fucking Kanye West. Yeah, Kanye would. Kanye would. Put, Kanye would put out a ten album set and expect you. You know who would do that too? Not that far fetched. Beyonce, even Jay Z would do something like that. Probably. Some hip hop artists have they done stuff like that? I think they have been. I, I think they've been. I think the most is double album. Yeah, 
what, what was like that Yeezus thing? Wasn't that like double or something? Or? It might have been. That was the one. The, the last time somebody took like a double album like that, it was uh, like a fucking Wu Tang took a double album and it sucked. Yeah, uh, you know terrible. a lot. A lot. You know, to me, the greatest, the greatest double album of all time is Stone's Exile on Main Street. I think. Okay, I think as far as like no filler. The whole fucking thing is good. Two records. Now, even like The Clash put out a triple album, Sandinista. But to me, it's only like one. It's all filler. It's it's like it's like one good album of stuff. Yeah, it's okay. amazing how that you works. Know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if they had done it differently, they could have got maybe two albums out of it with better songs. You know? Yeah. But they, yeah. But but look at that. I mean, Spectre, his most creative period was that time. And shit was falling off the rails for him. His marriage was would, would implode, okay? Because by '72, um, Ronnie would make her great escape, okay? She would have her mother over one day, and her, she told her mother, um, "If I don't get out of here, I'm going to die." All right, and she her mother got her out, okay, and and she was able to escape, run into the town. Leave Phil, okay, and 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 eventually by seventy four, they would be they would be divorced. Um, now, uh, in late seventy three, Spectre did the uh, initial recording sessions for what would be John Lennon's nineteen seventy five covers album called Rock and Roll. Um, this is an album of all covers of all like kind of like fifties, yeah, songs. Bapalula tracks like that, "Stand by Me" from the from the Drifters. Um, you know, this is like a people people have mixed feelings with this album, okay? But this the, the sessions were held in L.A. and John decided he was going to let Phil run the show for really the first time, okay? Because everything before that it was kind of like a co-production, okay? But he was going to let Phil run the whole thing. Now, Phil at that time was a <laughs> raging alcoholic. He was okay, a so he, yeah, so he turned it into a total party atmosphere, okay, which led to all kinds of stuff. And and, and this was when you started hearing about the guns, okay? Uh, guns would be pulled out in the studio. Supposedly, Lennon was recording a song. I'm not sure which one, but was recording a song and, and a gun went off, okay? Uh, they had to pull that out of the mix, I guess. But um, in, in December of that year, they ended up abandoning the whole project. But the problem was it was all paid for by Phil. Okay, Phil had had booked the studio. And the fact that they they abandoned the project, John, John didn't want to do it. Uh, he felt it wasn't going anywhere. Um, Phil held the tapes. Okay, until he got paid. Yeah. So he, you know, Lennon ended up, uh, I think about six months later in June of 74, he reimbursed him for the studio time through Capitol Records. Capitol, I believe, is what was going to put out that that album, I believe. So to recoup everything, to get the master tapes, they 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 paid for it. All right. That's all Phil wanted, I guess. Uh, at at that time, after that, the relationship between John and and Phil had soured a bit. Yeah, I think it wasn't totally bad, but but they had some bad feelings after that. 
Yeah, um, they just had to get away from each other for yeah, a bit. Yeah, well, that's true. They were kind of like hanging out a lot for four years. So in, in, in the 1970s, as they progressed along after that, Spectre became even more of a recluse. Okay. Now, his divorce with Ronnie, um, basically in 74, uh, the arrangement was uh, she would give up future rights to the music that she made. And she also gave up rights, uh, cust- custodial, I mean, her custody of her kids, the two, the two boys, the twins. Okay. Yeah. Um, she said she did it because Phil was going to hire a hitman to kill her. If, wow. she did, if she didn't do that. That's what she says in her book. Okay. So who knows? But that's what she did. Uh, she's Dude, but think co- about how truth that is. Look what happened. Could it, it could be true? Okay, I'm sure Phil had mob ties. Okay, uh, oh, sure he, he did. Remember I'm when sure Harlem he did. Brooks were talking about that they went to that guy's house or whatever. He was just Yeah, right, right, and she, right. She was saying she believed that uh, the reason he did that with with uh, Darlene Love becoming the Crystals was because they needed to put out something quick. Yeah. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. I mean, he may, you know, but in the in those days in the, in the 60s, the mob was was very involved in the music business. Oh yeah. And, you know, going back decades, okay? It wasn't until probably the 80s and stuff that they started to get out of that. Okay? But uh, even when we were doing the show with uh uh the show on Steve Marriott when he was in Humble Pie they they were all mob. The managers were all mob connected and everything. Too. Oh yeah, yeah. Now, um, on March thirty first of seventy four, he Phil was involved in a near fatal car accident. Okay, he got thrown from the wind through the windshield of his car, uh, and this was in Los Angeles. Um, he was basically almost presumed dead at the scene. But a police officer happened to notice a very faint pulse on him. And they rushed him to UCLA Medical Center. He had severe head head injuries. And it resulted in over like 300 stitches to his face and 400 stitches on the back of his head. Jesus Christ. All right. Now, he had a long recovery after that. And some people close to him said that he was really never quite the same after that accident. And okay. I think that's when he started wearing all those wigs, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, eventually, right. He 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 was known for wearing a toupee. Okay, uh, he 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 did have a toupee at a young age. I think he lost his hair in his twenties or something like that. But uh, uh, it wasn't outlandish looking. Okay, then he started to later on. He started to get into like <laughs> the funny wigs and yeah, it was you so know weird. I mean the the shit he was wearing on his trial and everything didn't help him, you know, but we'll get into that later. <laughs> now, after the recovery from the accident, uh, he began working with someone that you kind of would think would be maybe not a great fit, but then on second thought it might be. And that would be Dion DeMucci from Dion and the Belmonts. Okay. Yeah. Now, De- yeah. Well, well, maybe not. Dion was a guy. He was from the Bronx, same age, pretty much as, uh, as Phil. Okay, grew up only like one neighborhood over from each other. He was from, uh, Demucci was from like the Arthur Avenue area, the Italian section. Okay, yeah, and uh, 
you know, they decided to work together. Dion had gone through a dark period uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, where he was alcoholic. He was on heroin. Uh, we're going to do a show on him that should be uh, aired, I think, in August, maybe beginning of August. Yeah. Um, very interesting history, more than just the doo-wop stuff. He, he, he has a good history. We'll get into it. But uh, Dion wanted to come out with an album, and, and Phil offered to produce it, and he agreed. Okay, uh, It was an album called Born to Be With You. And it was recorded through part of 74 into 75. Um, it got released into in 75, but it got released to like no commercial fanfare at all. All right. For some reason, it just didn't connect. Okay. In America. All right. It ended up being somewhat popular and got kind of a, a cult status over time in Europe. Uh, Members of the band Primal Scream, for instance, always called it a uh, an influence. And in the '90s and early 2000s, it actually became a you know more popular with some of these indie bands that were around. They were mentioning it. Oh yeah, this this album is great. Now I listened to it last night. Uh, I haven't listened to it in a long time, and it is the production on it. You could tell it's Phil, and and Dion didn't like the production. He said. He made me sound like I'm in a, a funeral choir or something like that. I don't think it's that bad. Okay, I don't, I don't really agree with that. I think it sounds like typical wall sound. Um, but the, the, the subject matter of what he sings, there's one song called, um, I think it's called Your Own Backyard, where he's talking about how he did dope he's, and drank too much. And it's just coming out of his mouth. It's kind of weird because he, he kind of had like almost a clean cut image okay and and, but he was quite quite the opposite he got involved in some real real bad shit almost died you know but uh dion didn't like it he kind of he kind of has disowned the album i'm I'm not i'm not sure if if now occasionally when he performs now he's about 80 80 years old now uh but he still does occasionally perform before the pandemic um, I'm not sure if he does stuff from it. I, I, I'd, I'd like to know that. I would love to hear him do stuff from it, but he may he may have disowned it entirely. I'm not sure. I think he did disown it entirely. Yeah, says, I yeah, think, kind of, know. kind of, kind of, kind of a shame. Um, you know who was a big Dion fan? Uh, who? Lou Reed. Lou okay. Reed, yeah. yeah, Lou Reed loved Dion, and and if you notice, you might not know this. Um, the song "Dirty Boulevard" uh, at the end when he's saying, you know, I'm going to go out on the dirty boulevard, just as the song is ending, you yeah. hear like, you hear like a, a big singing voice in the background, kind of singing background. That's Dion. Wow. He actually, he actually put him on that song. But, um, I don't know. Uh, it was a quick, it was a quick record and, and, and a quick association with each other. They never really had anything to do with each other after that. Um, he ended up starting, the Warner Spectre label with Warner Brothers Records. And that label released music from Cher, Darlene Love, and others, okay? Uh, a similar relationship with Britain's Polydor Records led to the formation of the Phil Spector International label in 75. Now, over the next two years, there were several compilations of Spectre's early 60s material coming out. A lot of that stuff was out of print, 
couldn't find it, you know, things like the Ronettes and the Crystals and stuff like that. It was kind of out of print for a while. Uh, they would be re-released in Britain and America and they would they would sell again, you know, not not chart topping, but, you know, people liked the music and they, they bought it um, around 77. Phil began kind of reemerging. He was enjoying some of these new punk bands that had come around L.A. and New York. And uh, he made attempts in 1977 to reach out to the Ramones to produce them. Now, he wanted to produce their third album that they were working on called Rocket to Russia, but they turned him down. Uh, the Ramones at that point in 77, they were kind of producing themselves. Tommy Ramone did, did most of the producing the drummer, and uh, they didn't want to go to any outside producers at that point. It was just they had the music. Uh, by the time they recorded their third album, they had used up like all of their music that they had written from 74 to 77. So when their next album came out, Road to Ruin, in 78, they switched drummers. Marky Ramone was now the, the drummer. Tommy switched over to producing. And um, it didn't sell. They had a whole new album written. It was all new material that they had just started writing. And it didn't sell that great. It, it, it was supposed to be a big hit, but it wasn't. Um, and they, they, there was kind of a shift in the mentality of the band where they said, okay, maybe we'll go with an outside producer. And, you know, the only one who really expressed interest in them on, a lot was Phil. So they said, well, what about Phil Spector? And Sire Records said, sure, you can get him. Well, we can, we can pay him. It wasn't too much. Okay, so they ended up going with him. Okay, now uh, that would be in 79. But before we talk about that, we got to talk about Lenny Cohen. Okay, Uh, Phil would get involved with Lenny Cohen in 19, I think it was 77, 78. Okay, Uh, he invited Lenny Cohen to a party. Lenny Cohen is a, is, was at that point uh, basically a, he had almost a cult status. Okay. I think he always did uh, up until his death a couple of years ago. Um, he was known for like singing. He had this deep voice. He's the guy that sings Hallelujah. Yeah. Okay. I know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, he has a rabid following. Okay. And he always did. He had a small, rabid following. And a lot of the fans, when they heard that he was going to be working with Spectre, they didn't like it because they felt uh, it, would, it would just change his sound too much. He was known for a very sparse sound, just like his vocals was like his main instrument. Okay, the vocals were everything. Okay, uh, and they felt maybe that would take away too much from that if it was overproduced. But one night, uh, Phil, who really wanted to work with him, invited him to a party at, at Phil's house with a bunch of people. And at the end of the night, he refused to let Cohen leave. Okay. And he was known for doing that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> He's known for doing that, keeping you there. Sometimes, some, sometimes, that, sometimes at gunpoint. Okay. Now, he insisted on work. He told Cohen, I, I, I insist on working with you. We need to write together. We need to produce. Uh, and reluctantly Lenny Cohen kind of agreed and it became the album called death of a ladies man. And, um, 
right away the recording of the album had a lot of difficulties okay uh they did write about 15 songs together okay in like a week okay it was very quick they worked well together kind of in that way okay now like i said cohen's music was always kind of stark and acoustic sounding but this album sounds almost orchestral uh and that's not what most of his fans liked okay so it sold very poorly when it came out now there's a legend with this story that you know, just to show the craziness of Spectre is that he actually pulled a gun on him in the studio at one point and put it up to Cohen's neck. And he said something like, I really like you, Lennon. And, and Cohen said back, I hope you do. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you do, Phil. You know, (laughs) so. He was a wacky character, man. Yeah, yeah, but you could see, you could see how, you know, I think he through the seventies he was kind of unraveling, okay, and being a recluse, uh, you know, there was mental, def, definitely mental issues going on here, which we'll we'll talk about later. Um, by seventy nine, like I was saying, after the four self produced albums by the Ramones, they agreed on working with Phil, okay, uh, but like the Lenny Cohen album before the results would anger kind of fans of the band. All right. Now many felt the, the album kind of softened their sound, um, but end of the century. Okay. Which is the name of the album um, has some of their most famous songs on it, like rock and roll high school. And do you remember rock and roll radio? Okay. Two of the most famous songs uh, that they have is, is those. And also they did a cover of the Ronettes' Baby I Love You, which actually did very well in England. I think it went top 10 as a single, something like that. And this album was probably one of the best commercial success albums that it had also. It got to, I believe, number 39. It just cracked the top 40. So it was, you know, their their, their most commercially successful. Legend has it that a gun was pulled in this situation as well on the band. Uh, Always a gun. (laughs) <laughs> he, yep, he, he wouldn't he wouldn't let them leave. They wanted to leave. He would keep them in the studio or in his house sometimes. Um, I don't know. Marky Ramone says it didn't happen. Uh, Johnny and Dee Dee and I think even Joey admitted that it did. So I, I'll take three over one, you know. But um, Johnny and, and, and Dee Dee actually couldn't take it anymore because what would happen is he, he would he would he was so obsessive that he would make them do like take after take after take after take. I mean, story has it that, that Johnny Ramone, like the opening chord to rock and roll high school, he had to play it for 12 hours. Wow. And then, and then, you know, Phil ended up just taking the first take, you know, something like that. <laughs> okay. So he drove him crazy. And, I, and it was the whole, the whole session was, was, was plagued by problems. I think Johnny Ramone's father died and he had to return back to New York. Dee Dee, stormed out a couple of times he was on record years later saying i don't know who plays bass on that album um yeah you know and then baby i love you which was the big commercial single in england uh it's really not a ramon song it's really just a joey song because joey sings it sings it great but it's all an orchestra in the background it's none of it's none of the ramones okay so it's really kind of like a joey song now phil story goes too. really like like Ronnie Spector 15 years earlier 
wanted to just work with Joey. And he suggested to Joey, you know, leave these guys. I'll make a, I'll make a star out of you. You know, we'll do a solo record, this and that. Joey wouldn't, Joey wouldn't do it. Joey wouldn't do it. So, you know, Phil, uh, you know, you want to work with the guy, you got to put up with all kinds of shit, right? You know? So crazy shit, man. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, uh, through most of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, uh, he was not active in producing. In, in 1982, he had twin children with uh, another twin, you know, adopted twins, uh, with his girlfriend Janice. Uh, and they had a uh, um, uh, daughter there named Nicole Audrey Spector and Philip Jr. Now, Philip would die of leukemia in 1991, sad enough. Uh, but Nicole Audrey Spector is the one that's basically survived and wanted something to do with him. Okay, she's the one that announced that he died earlier this year and, and all that. Uh, his two twin sons from Ronnie that he had adopted, they have made some accusations against Phil uh, that are pretty heavy. Okay. Stuff like he locked them up in the house, wouldn't let them leave. This was after Ronnie was gone. She had given up custody and she would have a, a hard time even being allowed to see them. Okay. Occasionally she could, but, but not often. Okay. And, um, they, they claim both of them claim that they were sexually abused too. Like he would, I mean, it's sick, you know, he would, he would bring, he would force his girlfriend to like simulate sex with his two kids. Oh man. <laughs> okay. That's what the kids say. Okay. That's their side of it. Uh, I don't know. And he said things like, okay, you're, you know, you're about to learn something that's gonna, you know, make you a man, something in that way. Okay. Like that. Okay. I don't think he touched them, but he made them be involved with weird we had sexual acts with other people, you know? So, like I said, he wasn't doing much produ production-wise through the 80s and the 90s um, and the early 2000s. Yeah, now, he was pretty much... Like, yeah, yeah. Now, no, no, yeah. One exception was in right after the shooting of John Lennon in 1980, uh, Yoko Ono approached him to produce her record, which was the album Season of Glass. And uh, I think that actually is probably one of her best-selling records. I think it did very well, consider. I mean, you know, for her, okay, yeah. And it was like on the heels of of him pass of Lennon being killed. Um, in 1989, uh, Tina Turner inducted uh, Phil Spector into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, at the ceremony. And Spector, in all his craziness, he hit the stage with like three bodyguards. They ran up on stage kind of like elbowing Tina Turner out of the way. And, you know, he said something incoherent. He was talking about George Bush being elected president, you know, the elder, the, the older George Bush being elected president and something about the inauguration and then just grabbed his award and left. He was lumped up. He might have been lumped up or just who knows. OK, he just was losing it, you know. Uh, he ended up getting inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1997. 
and then received the Grammy's Trustees Award in 2000. In uh, 1996, he had a failed attempt at production. Uh, he got two songs out of it with Celine Dion. Okay. After Celine Dion had her big hit with the Titanic song, whatever the fuck that song's called. Okay. Yeah. Uh, she was coming out with an album called Falling Into You. I but, think uh, um, this, um, my heart will go on. That's my heart it. will go on. That's right. I, that, that, I hated that song. Oh, God, did I hate that song. That's a very popcorn fucking whatever song. Yeah, it's a chick, it's a chick, chick song. Forever. It's a chick song. It's a chick song. You know, but um, uh, he was gonna work with her, okay? But he ended up having a falling out with the production team uh, over the direction of the record. He butted heads with Celine's husband slash manager at the time. Uh, he ended up getting credit for two tracks on the album. One of them was a single that did kind of okay, I think, in Europe. And then one was another another album track that, that wasn't released. But uh, I think from what I've seen in documentaries and stuff, the main problem was, was Celine Dion's husband hated him. Yeah. Okay, it just didn't, didn't work out. Uh, and, she, and he had a lot of say in her career. You know, he was a lot older than her, remember? Didn't he just die in the last couple of years? I, I think, think he I, did. I think he did, yeah. Now, um, we're at the point now where we got to talk about the murder of Lana Clarkson because this is when Phil's life would basically go down the tubes. Yeah, it was okay? over. It was yeah. over with this yeah. happened. Yeah, yeah. Now, now he was, you know, for, for the, the, the murder would happen on February 3rd, 2003. But for 30 years, from the early 70s until that point, he was known as a recluse. He was known as a little bit crazy, but a musical genius that could probably help your career, especially early on. Okay. But by 2003, Phil, you know, really hadn't been working with anybody. There was a band named Star Sailor in 2002 that he was slightly working with, uh, but then they just, they let him go. And he was like, okay, good luck. See you later. Uh, maybe he mellowed in old age. I'm not sure at that point. But by February 3rd, 2003, at time of this murder, he still was a raging alcoholic. He still was drinking like crazy. Um, he went out and he ended up at the House of Blues Club in Los Angeles. And that's where he met Lana Clarkson. Lana Clarkson was a B-movie actress. Uh, if you remember uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah. Remember the scene at the end when the, the one professor teacher, uh, the guy that's like does all the dissections of the animals and all yeah. that shit. And, and he shows up at the prom with his wife. And that's his wife. I mean, he's like creepy looking and she's hot. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's Lana Clarks. And she made quite a few other B movies as well. Um, now he met her, he was on a date actually with uh with another woman that night. And um they were in the House of Blues and well, Lana was working as the hostess in the place. And he immediately something he had a connection with her right away. He kind of liked what he saw. Uh the date that he was with really wasn't interested in hanging out late. So he sent her home. Okay. He had a driver. So I guess he had the driver send her, you know, take her home. 
Um, and he stayed. And he ended up hanging out with Lana Clarkson till around, I think, 3 o'clock in the morning when the place closed. And he asked her if she wanted to go back to his house and have some more drinks and hang out. And she did. And she got this, this camera footage of, of her at the House of Blues parking lot getting into his car where he had a driver, okay, uh, the driver's name was was Adriano de Souza, and he yeah. would be he would be very important in in in, in what would subsequently happen. Um, they went back to the mansion, which was about twenty miles away, and de Souza was 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 sitting in the car outside, okay, outside the house, and he heard a shot go off. He didn't know what it was. He thought maybe tire blew out or something. And he went outside to look. And as he did that, he saw Phil Spector come out of the door, of the front door. And he said to Adriano, I think I killed somebody. Okay. And D'Souza immediately called the police. Okay. I don't think he was his, I guess he didn't have any loyalty to him or I don't know. Maybe it wasn't his regular driver. I'm not sure. Well, maybe it was just because he knew the right thing to do. Okay. But he called, he called the police and uh, they, he actually didn't know the exact address of Phil Spector's house. So we had to like, kind of look at the street sign. And he's like, you know, he, if you, if you, I've watched some documentaries on it. And I remember when it happened, I was following the case a little bit and they, they played the 911 call and, He's on it saying, I, you know, uh, I, need a, I need the police. Uh, my boss has killed somebody. And the, the 911 operator is like, what do you mean? Your, your boss kills? What do you mean? Well, who's your boss? And he says, Phil Spector. And that's and, what the, that's and it. The, Yeah, so the cops came and they found her, Lana Clarkson, slumped in a chair in the main kind of living room area. Uh, the gun was on the ground, but it had no fingerprints on it. Okay. Now there was a time he had a time lapse in there where he, he tried to change things around. Okay. He must've wiped the gun down. Okay. Now she was, she was shot in the mouth. Okay. And she died because the bullet penetrated her spine and severed her spine. Damn. Okay, so that's how she died. But she uh, was slumped in the chair. There was blood. There was not a lot of blood. It was like no blood around her. But they found blood going up the stairs. They found blood in a bathroom, I think, upstairs. Um, You know, it was obviously, you know, there was probably blood on him and he trapped, he traipsed it through the house. Okay. And he, he only cleaned up the little Larry. Remember he was drinking all night. Yeah. He, he was, he was lumped up. up. He was really lumped up. So <clears throat> he started saying at that point that she committed suicide. He, he, he had said when it first happened to Adriano, I think I killed somebody. And Adriano remembered that because he took the stand in the trial and he said that. Okay, and then when the cops came, he changed his tune. 
and he started saying, uh, yeah, I, she, she talked about how she didn't want to live anymore. The gun was there, but the gun was actually in a drawer because they found the holster in the drawer. So the assumption is, is that the gun was in the holster in the drawer. And how could she have known the gun was there? She'd never been there before. Okay. So something happened. Uh, she had her purse on her, around her, around her shoulders when she was found. And I think she even had her coat on. So the assumption by the detectives she is that she, she was looking to leave. Yeah. And he probably didn't want her, want her to go. Now, he said something strange. Like he said, you know, she was talking about killing herself. She didn't want to live anymore. And she even kissed the gun. Meaning she put her lips on it before she blew her head off. Nah. Okay. And the angle of the bullet when it went in and the way the gunpowder was found and, and stuff like that, it didn't match up with somebody that put the gun in their mouth. It just, it, you know, when you do that, when you put the gun in your mouth and you fire, you fall down a certain way. It, it, her, she also had, uh, she had injured her, both her, her, her wrists at one point, not too long before that. And she had gotten several surgeries related to damage in both her wrists. I think it was an accident, a car accident. Some, I'm not sure. I don't remember what it was. But she had injured herself. And she couldn't do things with her wrists a certain way. So there's no way she could have done it, put the gun in her mouth. Okay? Now, um, they, uh, they arrested him. Okay? And they charged him with murder. Yep. But he had a million dollars bail, which he made. He had no problem. He made that. Um, and he was a free man. Okay. For a while. Okay. But um, during that time, he actually produced a track by uh, an artist named Hargo. And it was a song called Crying for John Lennon. Yeah. And it's, a, it's on an album called In Your Eyes that came out in 2006 by this, this guy Hargo. Uh, and interest, interestingly enough, I think this is strange. He got he got married in that time. Okay, in 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 uh, that year, right after he got, while well, he was waiting for his trial. That's crazy. Um, he married a woman named Rachel Short, who was only twenty six years old. Okay, and he would stay married to her till twenty sixteen, when he was in jail again. Okay, and. It was over irreconcilable differences. So I don't know what that marriage was about. Okay. Uh, there was no children involved, nothing like that, but he, he was married to her. Um, in early 2007, he did something that I, I think is, is reprehensible. Um, he wrote the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, and he was protesting the induction of the Ronettes. Mm. All right. How do you do that? Right. I mean, he, he argued that the group was not really a proper recording group and they didn't contribute enough to music to really merit getting inducted into the museum. Um, they didn't listen. They were inducted anyway. Yeah. He was just okay. being sour. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. I was just being a spiteful son of a bitch, I guess. Yeah. Um, now on March 19th, Spectre's murder trial began. Uh, that was in 2007. Now the presiding judge was named Larry Paul Fiddler. And he allowed the proceedings to be televised. 
from the Los Angeles Superior Court. I remember watching some of this. It went on for six months. Okay. Uh, it lasted until September 26th, uh, 2007. And it ended up in a mistrial. Yep. Right. Ten people voted to convict. Two voted to not to not guilty. Okay. So he was a free man again. Now in December 2007, uh, he ends up at the funeral for Ike Turner. Ike Turner passed away, and he ended up giving the eulogy to to Ike. And he criticized that during the eulogy. He criticized Tina Turner's autobiography as a bad, badly written book of lies, okay, that, that demonized and vilified Ike. And he said that Spectre, uh, he added that, 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 that Ike made Tina the jewel that she was. And he said he went to see Ike play in the 1990s. And there were at least five different Tina Turners on stage that night. And any one of them could have been Tina Turner. Wow. And he also, during the eulogy, shit on Oprah Winfrey for promoting her book. Okay. If you remember when that book came out uh, in the, in the early, early nineties, and then they made what's love got to do with it. They made the movie based on it. You know, Oprah was a, was a driving force in the promoting of the book. Okay, I think she had a couple of times on her show and, and all that. So he, he just said, you know, he shit on Oprah for, for pushing the book. So in mid-April 2008 in the UK, uh, BBC Channel 2 broadcasted a special called Phil Spector, The Agony and the Ecstasy. And it consisted of Spector's first screen interview in years. He talked about his life and his career, and he also discussed criticisms he felt he had to endure in his career uh he didn't try to clear his name too much but some court scenes from the televised mistrial were shown uh at certain points to kind of like explain things that he was saying i've seen some of this documentary uh it's strange okay uh he he's clearly not well okay he's, uh, he's losing it yeah i mean he he, he yeah I, you know, I think the man was bipolar, okay, uh, and was misdiagnosed for many years, or not diagnosed, I should say. And and I think that while he was in prison, we'll get into it in a minute. He had, you know, gotten treatment for it, but it was too too far gone. Now, um, he would get indicted again and put on trial for second degree murder on October twentieth, two thousand and eight. He had the same judge again, Judge Fiddler. Yeah. And uh, this time he didn't allow any television, okay, to be shown. And he was once again represented by the attorney Jennifer Lee Barringer from the first trial. And the case went to jury on March 26, 2009. This time it was about five months long. Yeah. The jury deliberated for 18 days and came to a guilty verdict. He was also found guilty of using a firearm in the commission of a crime, which adds four more years in California. It adds four more years to the sentence. So he was immediately taken into custody on May 29th, 2009, sentenced to 19 years. It would have been 15 to life. Okay, but he got 19 to life 
because of the extra firearm charge, and he was put in a California state prison. Now, in that time, you heard little things about Spectre. Uh, he had made a comment about being bipolar, that he felt that he was never diagnosed, and he had bipolar all this time. I guess he was being treated in some way, okay, in the prison system. Um, but uh, he also possibly had Parkinson's. Uh, if you saw him at the second trial, he was shaking a little bit. Okay. She was showing symptoms of that. He also developed something in 2014, strange disease called laryngeal papillomatosis. Okay. And it's, it's a strange disease. I had to look it up last night. What the hell is it? Well, you get, you, you heard the, of the human papillomatosis. Papa million, what's it called? Papa Mola virus. It's like warts, like warts. Okay. HPV virus that women get. Okay. Uh, You get these little tumors in your throat by your vocal cords. And it causes a raspiness at first in your voice, a hoarseness. But then eventually you lose your ability to speak. And that's what happened to him wow. by 20 by 2014 he couldn't even speak anymore anymore okay and <clears throat> they don't know exactly how to treat this it's a very strange disease sometimes they can remove the tumors but in doing so there's no guarantee that they're not going to grow back so i don't know if they if he ever had any surgery regarding it um they don't know what causes it they think uh, there's two versions of it. There's a, a, a child version of the disease that they seem to understand a little more. But when an adult gets it, they don't quite understand it. They think it has to do. Didn't with we almost... have a singer that had something in his throat that he had to take out? Yeah, I don't remember who. Uh, but I don't think it was that. I think it was more like... Uh, Oh, who was it that had the on his vocal cords? He had a like a cancer. Yeah, they had a. Really- uh, yeah, I, if any of our fans remember, let us know. I can't remember who that was, but we talked about that. Yeah. No, this this was that was more. I think like a cancer. This. Yeah, but this, he was a kid. He remember when he was a kid. Okay. Okay. Maybe it was something similar. He but, couldn't sing, and they had to scrape out his throat, and. And then he could do it. Yeah, yeah I, I can't remember who that was, but I do remember discussing it. But uh, with Phil, uh, with this disease, is, is you get these tumor wart kind of like things inside your throat. And they think it comes from oral sex. That's one, that's one theory. Now, I mean, I, I, you know, what kind of, I don't know what he was getting in jail. I don't think he was <laughs> doing anything. I don't want to know. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what kind of oral either. You know, maybe from, from, from going down on a girl, you know what I mean? That too. I don't, I, I don't know. Okay. I'm not going to, that's oh, just yeah. one theory that the, that I read as a reason why people get this. But sadly, uh, the story ends here because Phil Spector would pass away June 16th of this year, 2021 of complications related to COVID that he was suffering from for about a month. Okay. Uh, sad end to a, to a genius, 
to a musical genius, a guy who had an ear for music, like, like very few people have had, uh, you know, it's an example of that. Like I was saying in the beginning that, that creativity, that fine line between genius, creativity, and just insanity. And he crossed that line. Okay. And, uh, never, never returned. And his, and his life, you know, a life was lost. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if the other accusations are true, what Ronnie Spector said and he, the children said and all that, he really was a monster for, for yeah. a long time. And it's sad, but... Um, he went from genius to monster to fucking madman to a murderer. Yeah, and just down the drain, you know, his whole life. Um, very sad. On a different note, what I have to mention... Um, for time purposes, and this has been a long show, I didn't go into too much of uh, the musicians and stuff that, that uh, Phil used. So I just want to mention that, that, you know, all the music that you heard from the Ronettes and the Crystals, uh, all the other bands, the Darlene Love stuff, even the uh, uh, Tina Turner River, Deep Mountain High, things like that, all those big hits that he had in the 60s, the music that was performed was by an act called the wrecking crew. They were studio musicians. Okay. Yeah. That and, wrecking crew, that's, that's yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it based, it was based around a guy named Hal Blaine who played drums. Uh, think of Hal Blaine. When you think of the beginning of be my baby, you know, yeah. the drum, the drums in the beginning of that, that beat. Okay. Which has been used in a million songs. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that was Hal Blaine. Okay. And, and then you had guys like Glenn Campbell, who ended up being a big country star, but he started out as part of the Wrecking Crew. A guitarist named Tommy Tedesco played on everybody's music in in, in Los Angeles. Basically, uh, they were all based out of L.A. Doctor John, okay, started out in the Wrecking Crew. Uh, you know, I so, think the Wrecking Crew deserved their own separate. I, 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 you know what? I was thinking that when I was when I was writing up the show, and uh, there is a fantastic documentary about them that I think I could I think I could put a good podcast together. It's interesting because they play on so much music. You know, like remember we talked about the Funk Brothers that played yeah. for Motown, okay? Just imagine that like times 10, okay? I mean, the 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 amount of music these guys played on. If you needed a session musician or or a group, you'd call them in. Okay? That's, and these guys think we should do a show that maybe for yeah. September beginning middle of September doing a show on the record crew. Yeah, yeah. Another person that uh, two people that you know well that were a big part of Phil Spector's not the Wrecking Crew but his production team, especially at Gold Star, was Sonny and Cher. Yeah. Okay. Now they Sonny and Cher met there. Okay. Cher was an up and coming singer. Her name was Sherilyn. Okay. And he was a, a a songwriter. Okay. Sonny Bono wrote Needles and Pins. Okay. That the Searchers did. And the Ramones yeah. would do, and other people would do later on. Yeah, he wrote a couple of songs, and, and he wrote a lot of the music that Sonny and Cher did. I actually like a lot of Sonny and Cher stuff. I like the stuff that, you know, didn't, wasn't released as singles, the album tracks. Uh, he was like, I think he was a great songwriter. Um, we're going to talk about Mott the Hoople next week, okay? Yeah. And it's interesting... Um, a little segue is when Ian Hunter 
okay, uh, auditioned for Mata Hoople, okay, to, to sing. Uh, he, he did a Sonny and Cher song. Okay, he played it on piano. And uh, I just think that that's, out of all the people to do, that's what you did. The song called Laugh at Me that Sonny sings. <laughs> the song called Laugh at Me that Sonny sings alone. Cher's not on it. Okay. And uh, they, that's, it's a great track. It's all about like being like a, a long-haired guy and everybody making fun of you, but like you don't care. Okay. You're going to let them laugh at you. You don't even care. Okay. So anyway, but the Wrecking Crew was, was something I had to mention uh, as, as a big part of the genius of Phil Spector. These guys were amazing musicians. They could have been a band themselves. They could have yeah. been ten, 10 different bands. Okay. But they, they really just were studio guys. You needed a good piano player. You called up Dr. John. Boom. He's there and hammer out anything. Okay. So that's the story. Phil Spector. What a long journey to get to um, this uh, ending. And wow, what a tragic ending it was for Phil Spector and, um, what can you say, man? From he, genius to madness. There'll never be another more. one. There'll but never the be devil? another one like nah. him. Um, Nobody. He was one of a kind. One of a kind. So I'm glad we did this show. I hope you all enjoyed it. And uh, like I said, next week we got Mata Hoople coming up. We got a show on Muddy Waters. Uh, we got a show. Um, five live albums. Um, yes, right? the five live albums. We'll be talking about a couple of my favorites. Uh, we'll surprise you when that when that's going to be. Um, and I believe Sean Harris, our guest that we had from the Iron Maiden show, will be part yeah. of that. Uh, I've you know check out the Rock Show group page on Facebook. I just listed last night all the up and coming shows through the end of the summer. So we've got a lot of things lined up through the end of August. It's going to be a good summer, folks. Yeah. And um, if you're looking for me. Uh, the Rock Show Podcast group page. You can find me there on Facebook. I'm also under a new name on Facebook, Rocco Mike. Yes, Rocco, Rocco Mike. Mike. I've channeled my, my mother's Italian side of the family, and I've become Rocco Mike. Um, also, on Instagram, you can find me under Rocker Mike 212 Rocker Mike 212 You can find me on Parlor under Rocker Mike. And you can find me on MeWe under Rocker Mike and Clout Hub under Rocker Mike. So I'm all out there. Find me, talk to me, give me some ideas, tell me what you think. Uh, Rob, where can we find you? You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter, pretty much any social media platform. You can also order some of the t-shirt at ProWrestlingTees.com slash Getting Lumped Up. With the newest shirt that we have, the murder ball. Oh, God. And you don't have to explain that. I know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So, anyway, um, until next week, what do we always say? Don't get drunk. Get lumped up. See you next week. Take care, people. Podcast you will hear that will be music to your ears. You'll learn about bands you love or may not know, and it's only here on the rock show.
Let's get lumped up on the rock show.